0: Good morning, everyone. Will you please be seated? Before we begin, there is an outline of this morning's sermon in your yellow bulletins if you would like to uh, read on with that, uh, as, or if you would like to take any notes as well. <coughs> well, to begin with, who do you turn to? It depends the circumstances, doesn't it? It depends what it is that you are looking for. If you're sick, then you'll turn to a doctor. You'll go to a hospital. If you're sad, you'll turn to a trusted friend. If you're in trouble, you'll turn to someone that you hope has the power to help you with that problem. Throughout the Gospel of John that we're looking at at the moment, people have been turning to Jesus. They have been following him, quite literally following him around the place as he does amazing things, as he says as he tells them the truth about themselves and about God. So when people turn to Jesus, what are they looking for? What is it that he offers that they can't find somewhere else? Well, let's have a look at this passage today and see how we ourselves are encouraged to always turn to Jesus. First of all, Point one in our outline, Jesus has given them a hard teaching, one that they find difficult to accept, to such an extent that many of them are even offended by it. Have you ever accidentally offended someone? When travelling, it's very easy to offend, isn't it? One particular example that comes to my mind is the whole terrible situation of when to tip overseas and when not to. In some countries, if you tip a certain amount, then you're offending someone. You need to tip higher. In other countries, if you try and tip someone at all, then you will offend them to the same extent. It's hard. It can be easy to offend people when there is a misunderstanding. But why are these people offended at what Jesus has taught them? Is there a misunderstanding? Have they just failed to grasp what he is talking about? They say there in verse 60, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And the people saying this are not simply the Jews, but many of his disciples were finding this teaching hard to take. You see, in the previous parts of chapter 6, these disciples were more interested in the physical food that he could give them as he fed thousands of people, in the political power that he could give them if he would only become their king, in the miracles that he could do for them and that they could manipulate to their own ends if he would continue to practice those for him. They were more interested in these things than the spiritual realities that all of these things had been pointing to in the first place. So why does the teaching from Jesus offend them? Well, in verse 61, it says, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Well, what does offend really mean? For this, I think it's helpful to look at how we offend. True offence. In fact, the greatest offence that there is In the whole world, that is our sin against God. If you think of the words from the creeds, uh, sorry, from the confessions, they outline how we offend God and ask him for our forgiveness. But when we are offended, it's as if we have taken those words and flipped them around and said that we feel offended when people sin against us by thought, word or deed or by what they have failed to do for us, and so deserve our condemnation. That's why we are so easy to feel offended when we fail to remember how we have offended God. I can understand these people, though, because they thought they knew what they needed, and they knew that Jesus could give it to them. Healing, bread, power security in this world they thought that he was just choosing not to for some reason and so they leave him they were unprepared to give up their own authority over their own lives even in religious matters they were unable to step out genuinely in faith even though Jesus had given them no reason not to they were also particularly offended when Jesus claimed to be greater than Moses, uniquely sent from God, authorised to give life. They were offended when Jesus extended the metaphor of bread and how that itself becomes his own body. They were offended when Jesus talked about how they needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood, showing the depth of the connection and how much they needed to rely on him and not themselves. They had many reasons to be offended, but the greatest offense, well, that was still to come. In verse 62, Jesus says, Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? You see, if these disciples find Jesus' claims and authority and even what language he uses offensive here, then what about when they see him ascend to the cross? Jesus is telling them so much about himself here, but it's something that will offend so many. The moment of Jesus' greatest degradation and shame Is actually the moment of his glorification. And so, how the people respond to this truth, well, it determines their destiny. Jesus shows them that it's not just about being particularly smart or understanding deep things, it's about allowing God's Spirit to work in them. He says, The Spirit gives life, but the flesh counts for nothing. This is the same Spirit that has been working through the Old Testament that they seem to know so well, and the same spirit that would be given to his disciples at Pentecost to lead them and point them always to the truth. And they need this, because coming to our second point in the outline, belief is not automatic. I'm sure you've had experiences where you felt frustrated that you can't make someone believe you. If you tell someone that a certain action is perfectly safe because you've done it yourself a thousand times, convincing someone else who feels anxious about it can be a hard thing. I, for one, have no desire at all to go bungee jumping, even though I've been told that it is very, very safe. I understand that. I know that. And yet, I still don't want to do it. I've even read that you are 18 times more likely to die every time you go in a car than if you go bungee jumping so why do we still go in a car well we're used to it aren't we we know it i understand those statistics i understand the logic but i'm still not going to do it and i i think that's probably the same for most of the people here as well belief is not automatic You can't logic someone into believing. And that is the same with belief in Jesus. In fact, Jesus already knew who really believed. He knows that there were some of them there who didn't believe. He'd known from the beginning, as it says in verse 64, those who didn't believe and those who would betray him. If they don't combine this message that they have been given with true faith, it's of no value to them. But Jesus knew where he was going, and he knew which people were going to believe in him as well. And so, belief starts with God. Now, this is something that we're taught there in verse 65. And that Jesus has taught them in previous verses as well. He says in verse 65, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. This is called, in Christian circles, the the doctrine of election that God is the one who chooses which people he enables to come to him. This is something that at first glance can seem unfair to us. How does God choose? Why not everyone? But I think it should also be humbling because when we are tempted to call God unfair, we're not recognizing the fact that we deserve nothing from him, that our own sinfulness divides us from God in a way that we ourselves can never overcome. What we need to realize is just how far we are from God. Without his help, it's not as though we're people who are desperately seeking him and need him to come and rescue us. We are people who are running in the opposite direction and need him to work in our hearts to turn us around. So it's humbling, but it also leaves no room for pride. Those disciples who who stayed, they have no reason to be prideful of their decisions. As Jesus says in verse 65, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Jesus knew then that he would be rejected by many. He knew that it was his Father who enables people to come to him in faith and believe him. And so in verse 66, many of his disciples from this time turned back and no longer followed him. He'd done nothing to remove the offence that they found in all his words. He hadn't tried to paper over the offence or to cajole them into staying with him just a little bit longer. He wasn't going to pander to what they wanted him to say. What they wanted, he wasn't about to give them. And what he was offering to them, well, they were not ready to receive it. And so... For those who remained, they have two options, as we see from point three in our outline, to stay or to go. If you've ever ended up in an emergency room in the hospital, either for yourself or for someone else, waiting to see a doctor, I'm sure you know that it can take hours, depending on what you're there for and how many others come in, to actually see someone. And during that time, Would it ever cross your mind that maybe you could just get up and leave? Maybe that would be better. You have two options, to stay or to go. And if you want to see a doctor, well, then you're going to have to stay. You're not going to find one somewhere else. You need to stick with it. And so Jesus is asking his disciples to do the same, to stick with him. As he says in verse 67, you do not want to leave too, do you? He's challenging them there. He's saying this for their sake, not for his own. He needs them. They need to articulate their own response more than than he needs to hear it from them. So he asks them to decide. But Peter is the one who gives the simple answer in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Where else can they go to find what Jesus is offering them? Not just eternal life once this life is over, but eternal life starting now, life knowing him, life in his family as God's children, with him as our Lord and brother. He's not just offering them a get-out-of-hell-free card. He is offering them eternal life, something that they have sought and something that they know they need more than any amount of bread or miracles or healing or political authority in this world. To whom else can they go to find this? There's no one else that is offering it, no one else who has before or since. And so they decide to stick with him, wherever he's going. And Jesus, as we see, he knows where he is going. Jesus replied in verse 70, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? And John makes it explicit to us that he is talking about Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve disciples, who would later betray him. John doesn't seem to mind uh, telling us one of the great twists of the gospel story right here and now. Because he's not just trying to tell a story to entertain people. He's telling them the truth about Jesus so that it can inspire them and also warn them. Because Judas's act of betrayal, it's born in these words when Jesus reveals who he is and where he's going but he was still chosen by Jesus. He was one of Jesus' co-workers for three years before his betrayal. He chose him as much as he chose the rest of the 12, and he wasn't chosen simply so he could play the role of the betrayer. Something happened in him. Some despair engulfed him, some cynicism set into his heart, and so he decided to stand against the one he followed and the one that he believed in, and not to stick with him. Perhaps he thought that things had been better before, that the more that he was learning about Jesus, the less that he liked, that maybe the movement that Jesus had started would be better off without him. He, like the others who left Jesus, had taken offence at what he was telling them. But... For us today, as much as it is for them, offence is always a choice. We can decide whether someone offends us or not. It's up to us. Sometimes we can even secretly take pleasure in being offended. How twisted is that? But it's empowering. It can allow us to feel self-righteous. But we need to be slow to take offence. And I know that I'm much less likely to be offended when I remember how much I have offended God. We need to avoid the self-satisfaction and empowerment of being offended and be slow because of what God has forgiven us. And so the gospel is just as offensive today as it was to those people who were with Jesus. Jesus didn't give them what they wanted, and so they walked away. The gospel has always and will always have something that people can take offense to. So why is it? Why does it, um, why does it offend people? Why does it send them away? Well, first of all, it's exclusive. In it, Jesus claims to be the only way. The implication being there is no other. Any other way that people claim to have, to fulfilment, to knowing God, to eternal life, well, it's just not true. And we need to be willing to accept that if we're going to accept Jesus' words. Because secondly, it's offensive because it claims absolute truth. Jesus claims that truth is never relative You have your truth and I have mine. He says that he is the truth. He is bringing truth to the world. It's not from us, from our own desires. It's from him and from his Father. And thirdly, I think the gospel can be offensive because it's out of our control. It has nothing to do with what we can do and everything to do with what Jesus has done for us. We can so often want to be self-sufficient, but Jesus is telling people that they need him. He is the only one with words of eternal life. From our New Testament reading this morning, from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we read Paul telling the Corinthians in verse 15, For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one we are an aroma that brings death. To the other an aroma that brings life. How can the one message uh, have such opposite effects in people? Well, if people don't come to Jesus, if they choose to go their own way, then there's no other way for them to go. People will turn away or recognize that there is nowhere else for them to turn. And so I encourage you this morning to stick with Jesus. Because they weren't going to find what he was offering them in any other place. And we're not going to find words of eternal life anywhere else because Jesus is the only one who has them. So stick with Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that your Son, our Lord, has words of eternal life. Help us to stick with him, to cling cling to him throughout our lives, knowing that through him we too can share in the life that you offer as your children. In his name we pray. Amen.